Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Robin MacArthur, whose debut novel, Heart Spring Mountain, was released in January. Robin lives on the hillside farm where she was born in southern Vermont. Her debut collection of short stories, Half Wild, won the 2017 Penn New England Award for Fiction and was a finalist for the New England Book Award and the Vermont Book Award. Her essays and stories have appeared in Orion Magazine, The Washington Post, and on NPR. She is also the editor of Contemporary Vermont Fiction, an anthology, one half of the indie folk duo Red Heart the Ticker, and the recipient of two creation grants from the Vermont Arts Council and the National Endowment for the Arts. Heartspring Mountain is about several generations of women in a rural Vermont family. It centers around Vale, who returns home after her estranged mother, Bonnie, disappears during Tropical Storm Irene. But as Heartspring Mountain follows these women, it also tells a story of place, politics, and climate change. Myriad changes, actually, from emotional to socioeconomic. I first fell for Robin's writing when I read Half Wild. I love the texture and pulse of her Vermont, which reminds me so much of my own rural home, and the clear-eyed view she takes of the place and all its complications. In this conversation, recorded in January, we talk about how a novel of ideas must still be, ultimately, a novel about people. We also talk about the characters that stay with you, the desire to rewrite female narratives, and writing without yet knowing what you're writing about. You write a novel and you're, I think if you're doing it well and from a creative place, you have, don't really have any idea what it's about. And then after the fact, you have this opportunity to try and articulate that. looking forward to talking with you today. And I'm excited as well. I learn so much about my books when I discuss them with other people. So it's always an exciting process. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, it's been really cool for me too, talking to people, just seeing all the ways in which you see like your kind of own processes reflected back at you. And it, it really is a very cool self-discovery. Yeah, yeah. And every time I talk about my book, I, I have a new answer as to what the book is about, mm. which is interesting. I mean, you know, it evolves. It's just, I'm, I, you write a novel and you're, I think if you're doing it well and from a creative place, you have, don't really have any idea what it's about. And then after the fact, you have this opportunity to try and articulate that. So what, what do you think the book is about right now? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it has so many themes, but one of the one of the major themes is climate change and how we live in this unstable time. You know that the ground is really shifting beneath our feet, and these storms, which in the novel it was Tropical Storm Irene, which hit Vermont um, very hard in 2011, but these storms are everywhere and happening all the time, as we see right now today, when it's you know sub-zero temperatures and these superstorms. And um, so it's, this isn't climate fiction, but it is about how we, um, how, how do we kind of persevere and find hope and resiliency and connection in, in this very unstable time. Mm -hmm. And it's unstable because of climate change and it's unstable because of our economic instability. And in my, in Vermont here, we're suffering from an opioid epidemic and um, and so how we how the past both shows us where our, these wounds come from and offers 
some answers as to how to go forward. Do you think that the characters in your novel, that the the way that they choose to live their lives is uh, are political acts, and you know the fact that they're kind of living off the grid or, or living as self sustainably as possible? Yeah, what's what's interesting is um, for, and I so I have multiple generations of characters in my book, and for Hazel, who's in her nineties and has whose family has lived on this mountainside in Vermont for generations. It's not a political act. It's just what she's known. And, and for her family, the land is everything and farming is everything and family is everything. But then you have, um, you know, a character who comes to Vermont, hitchhikes to Vermont in 1974 as part of the Back to the Land movement. And for her, it, it is very much political to um, <clears throat> try to reject capitalism and live a kind of Thoreauian lifestyle as much as possible. She was influenced by Thoreau and the Nearings. And um, and so each of the characters in the book is struggling with that question of, is heading to the woods and living off-grid um, a solution, or is it a cop-out? And in which ways has did the back-to-the-land movement's idealism fail, and in which ways does it succeed, and did it succeed, and and what can we learn from those failures and successes? Yeah, and I really love the way that those two women that you just mentioned, the younger of whom becomes the daughter-in-law of the of the older, I love how that tension kind of plays out between them, how Hazel kind of looks at her as, as sort of a, almost like a stunt uh, performer or something, you know, you, you just, you wanted this idea, and you just came to create this idea. Right. And I think, um, you know, yeah, when when Deb moves there in 1974, she is kind of ridiculous. And her idealism is is not rooted in reality at all. She has this very simplistic version of what it means to go back to the land and live a simple life. But it's now 30 years later. And she's learned a lot. And what I, I live in this community in southern Vermont where there are old farming generations and there are also a lot of hippies here still who have lived here for a long time and have really wedded their lives to this landscape in much more nuanced and um, complex and sensitive ways than maybe they started out with when they were 20 and hitchhiking north. One thing that I think your your fiction is so full of um, is empathy. And I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, someone like Deb, you know, where obviously, you know, it's not, she's not evil. She hasn't done anything terrible, but you know, you, you have your own personal judgments maybe about the way that she's decided to live. And how do you kind of bring that sense of compassion to characters? I think I, it helps that I'm a very naturally empathetic person. It makes me in some ways not the best friend because, or, you know, I'm that person who will side with whoever is telling me their side Mm. of the story. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel, I feel I'm able to feel what it's like to be everyone when they're, when they're telling me how it feels to be them. And so, um, but I also, I can't imagine writing a character who I didn't have empathy for. You know, I don't believe in human evil. Well, no, that's not true. I used to not believe in evil. Now I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but in general, I think most people are good and our mistakes are, are simply our fallibility and our, you know, our confusion between what we want and what we what we don't yet know. I love that idea. Yeah, and I and I also think that if I were to write a character who I didn't love, 
I just, I don't think that character would feel real. You know, I, I feel like I need to be able to resonate emotionally with a character in order to make them come to life on the page. And Deb, you know, I do mock her a little bit for being so idealistic when she's 21 and hitchhiking north to Vermont and thinks that everything's going to be perfect when she reaches this commune. But I was also um, 21 once, and I did a lot of things that, you know, I didn't have the same idealism about going back to the land because I grew up off grid with back to the land parents, but um, but I had my own naivete and made my own foolish but romantic and uh, journeys. They weren't mistakes; they were just journeys. Right. <laughs> yeah. What was it about Vale, uh, who who also plays a part in one of the stories in your? short story collection half wild and hazel i mean hazel's mentioned but i don't think i was just going back and looking at it this morning she doesn't really have a huge role in that story but so but these are characters that you've been thinking about before so where what what about them stuck with you um what really happened is i was i wrote that story about veil which is in my story collection half wild and then i started writing about hazel and from hazel's point of view and I realized that that was not going to be a story on its own, but it was something much larger. And I guess, um, you know, I, my characters just settle in me. I don't make rational choices about who I'm going to write a novel about. But Vale stuck with me because I think she represents, we have Hazel who represents this old farming culture and generations of Vermonters. And we have Deb who represents the back to the land movement and the hippies of the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now we have these new generations in Vermont who are struggling with very different things that, you know, there's a lot of economic instability and the world itself is unstable. And there are lots of um, drug issues that have never been here before. And I see a lot of the young people who I know and love feeling more adrift, much more adrift than I felt when I was their age. And so I'm, I feel very compassionate and concerned for that generation who's coming of age in an age of climate change when, when everything is unstable and the future is so completely unclear what's coming. You know, when you were growing up, because uh, I think, you know, we've, we've chatted about this a little bit before over email and things that we come from very similar places. Um, and, you know, I, in, in Appalachia, there's also, you know, this huge opioid crisis in West Virginia, specifically where I'm from. And, um, and I was thinking while you were saying that, that, you know, when I was growing up, there was this, um, there was this kind of understanding that like, if you wanted to be successful, you had to leave. And I wonder if you, if you were kind of given that narrative and, and if you see a change in that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it was definitely, that was the narrative, you know, I returned, but that was the general narrative among a lot of my friends was we're going to, if we want to get out of here, we're going to go to college and we're going to, um, go do something else somewhere else. And, uh, what I see right now is a lot of young people who are choosing not to go to college. And these are people with very similar parents with similar, uh, um, who have parents with similar educational backgrounds to mine. You know, these are people who could go to college and are opting out of college, um, who just have a, have a, a very confusing 
understanding of where they might be successful and what the purpose of their lives are and how to live in these unstable and dark political and environmental times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of political roads we could go down about about that. But you mm-hmm. know, I, I feel um, I obviously went to college, had a really great experience in college, but I think also to put so much the pressure that we put on as a society of into going to college, which is a private, an act of like immense private spending and the way that we, you mm-hmm. know, spin it that you have to like, that there is no other mm-hmm. way to live a life that doesn't involve a bachelor's degree. Um, I mm-hmm. feel like all of that stuff is a lot more volatile than it was. Certainly when I was growing up, there yeah. was, there was less of a kind of pushback. Yeah. Yeah. And I see a lot of people, um, you know, I think there's a there's a resurgence, at least where I am in the back to the land movement, where a lot of people in their 20s who I know and love are farming and opting instead of going to college to start a CSA and rent some land or, um, uh, you know, move into onto the land of somebody who is elderly and was farming and start farming again. So in some ways, I feel like what the time that we're in right now is echoes 1968 in a lot of ways. Mm. And um, that was another interesting thing to discover as I wrote the novel, because I started, you know, the character of Hazel appeared 10 years ago and Hazel and Vale. And then I wrote the characters of Deb and Stephen, maybe even longer ago than that, not their entire narrative arcs, but they appeared. And so I've been working on this novel for a long time, but it wasn't until a few years ago that it began to be set during Tropical Storm Irene and become about climate change. And then as after last year's election, it became just even more political in terms of what can we learn from 1968 and the people who who um, were struggling with a lot of the same questions that we're struggling with now, and and what can we learn from Hazel's generation and what can we learn from previous generations? You know, so it's about these are hard times, but hard times have been had before, and what can we learn by looking backwards? Right, right, and in terms of you know the the act of writing and and rewriting, what because, you know, I, I'm dealing with a lot of similar ideas as they play out in Appalachia in my novel project. And mm-hmm. it's um, it's always something that I'm aware of to make sure that because I think I kind of my own personal inclination is to think a lot more about ideas necessarily than about the people like participating in them. So I've, I, I'm mm-hmm. always aware of that idea of like, am I making this person too much of just like a symbol for a concept, you know? Um, mm-hmm. how, is that mm-hmm. something that you dealt with? Well, fortunately, like I was saying, the characters came to me first. Mm-hmm. So I had Hazel and uh, I had Hazel and Vale and I had Deb and Steven and they were characters. So I knew who they were. And it wasn't, I really put the political touches on at the end, which I think helped with that. And also I did a lot of, you know, this is my first novel and creating a narrative arc that can stretch the length of an a novel was very new to me. (laughs) And each character, not only does the whole book need to have some kind of thing to propel it forward, but, um, but each character has to have their own narrative arc that matches the length of the novel. 
And so I did a lot of, I made sure that I was, I was still focusing on each character. What do they want and what does each scene bring them and, and where are they headed personally to make sure that it was still rooted in character. And one of the interesting things is because I did a lot of the political layering towards the end of the writing process, I came away when I finished the novel, I said, Oh, I wrote it. I just wrote a novel about climate change. And the first few people who read it said, oh, this isn't really about climate change at all. This is about people and love and, you know, human beings and what it's like to be human. And so I, it's a, it, it was a good reminder that you can have ideas about what your novel is about, but if it's character driven, it will just be about the characters and how and and ride on the strength of those characters. Right, right. And you talked about the, you know, the first novel idea of the the narrative arc and working that out was was Vale uh was the kind of anchoring sort of forward movement of trying to find Bonnie was that in there from the beginning? No. No, that was help from <laughs> my first reader. <laughs> who said, you need to have something that pushes this forward. Um, That is, you know, I love to write scenes. I love to write characters. I love words. And creating plot is is definitely the harder piece for me, the harder piece of the puzzle. So that was was work. That was muscle and effort and time (laughs) to create that. Yeah, because I feel that way myself. And I feel like then what happens to me is when I am making the effort, it feels so forced because you're aware of how much effort you're making, you know, Mm -hmm. it can be, you know, even of course it doesn't, it doesn't translate that way to the reader, but to you, it's like, sometimes I'll write, you know, I'll come up with a metaphor or something and just already it feels tired to me just for the act of my thinking of it. And I'm just like, oh no, Mm -hmm. but this is obvious. Everybody knows that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really good to have other readers for that reason to tell you <laughs> what what's working for them and what's not. Yeah, and I I do think that um uh you know, novels no novel is perfect. Maybe there are some perfect novels. But I had to let go of I had to accept the fact that my novel would have places that flowed really easily and there would be places where at least the work was evident to me and um, that that's okay. That like novels are complex beasts and there's going to be some moments that maybe have some knobby knees. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's why, you know, that's the forum. That's why you have so much space to, to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, yeah. can you talk a bit about how you came to this structure? Um, I, like I said, I had started this, Hazel story, and I had started this Deb and and Stephen story even years, maybe three years before that. Um, and I, when I, they they cut, they both lived on these. I actually printed them, and they lived in one folder in my desk drawer for about seven years. And I eventually realized that they could go together, and that. There could be a hillside which brings these people together. And so I I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to write about a place as the central character and have multiple points of view of the people who live in that place and how they 
see that place differently and relate to that place differently, which is a similar structure to my collection of short stories, which is set in one fictional town and has multiple points of view. Although in the novel, everybody's related to one another, their family. So in some ways, this is a short story writer's first attempt at a novel, which I just couldn't imagine writing from one point of view and being able to sustain the length of a novel. I had to jump around and hear different voices. But I I also love that in novels. And that's one of the things that is most interesting to me in fiction is that you are able to see something from different angles and from different perspectives. You know, we live our lives in this one body, this one set of eyes, and we only see things through that filter. And with fiction, you're able to show how one story can be seen from multiple perspectives. Another thing that I I was interested to hear you talk about, uh, selfishly, because this is also something that I'm dealing with, is the the kind of writing challenge of having living characters try to engage and engage with and learn about dead characters. Mm-hmm. And so you had you have these great letters uh, that Lena has written that Vale has found, and and so that's a way in. But just you know when you're when you're working with those characters, thinking about those people and you know I I kind of I'm always nervous about uh because I think this is the sort of thing that I tend to like over interiority like you know somebody sitting alone in a room thinking kind of thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love interiority that's like my thing (laughs) (laughs) how did you approach that kind of bringing these generations together um I think that's another reason to just cheat a little bit and have these multiple points of view in that the reader knows a lot more about these people than Vale does, but then Vale can find the little hints, can find the hints, and the reader can fill in those pieces. Um, whereas if it was from one point of view, if it was just from Vale's point of view and she was basing everything on the scraps of paper that she finds and the hints that she finds, there would be a lot of Vale thinking about what she might know or might yeah. not know. Um, do you have multiple points of view in your novel? I have kind of uh, a voice who comes in and goes away uh, very, very early on. Is kind of only just present for the first few pages. And then that's the person that kind of needs... Um, needs introducing to, you know, for a, for a current, for a living character. Um, so I'm still kind of playing around with it, but I mean, so far it's kind of just been a limited third person sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I also love dreams and letters for that reason. And that somebody could, could dream some, a relationship with somebody and, um, you know, they could come alive a little more via that. Yeah. So you you said that you've been working on this for so long. Do you know like kind of when you realized you were working on a novel and not, you know, when kind of all the characters came together and like how long have you been working on like the novel in like a manuscript form? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I when I so it was um I I wrote the Hazel pieces in 2009. Um, and I remember I was in graduate school and I said to my advisor, oh my goodness, I sent it to him and I said, oh my goodness, this isn't a story. This is a not, this is like one of the end scenes of a novel. And so I was lucky in that I wrote 
Well, actually, I wrote the beginning and I wrote the end of Hazel's uh, scenes in that in pretty much one sitting in 2009. And that gave me, at least I knew one of the narrative arcs of this novel. And so from that point on, I knew that this was a novel and it sat on a back burner for a long time. And then it married, like I said, it married the Deb and Stephen pieces at some point, but I didn't really work on it. And I had about 40 pages and a concept in my head. And then um, it was two and a half years ago that I got a, um, I sold my short stories and I got a contract for a novel at the same time, this novel. And I said, all right, now it's my time to write this novel that's been (laughs) sitting on the back burner for so long. And so I never could have written a novel in two years if I didn't know, if it hadn't had all those years of percolation. But because I did have, I knew who the characters were and I loved my characters and I knew what their yearnings were and I knew what their sorrows were um, and and I had at least one of the narrative arcs, I I could just jump in and start writing. And so I, I wrote it over those two years and probably have 20 pages from the original manuscript. I was going to ask you yeah, if those hazel scenes are still there in, in any recognizable form. Yeah, they, I mean, there are a few paragraphs from those first. There's a couple paragraphs from the beginning that have changed and a couple paragraphs from the end that have changed, but yeah, those just, you know, just shadows of what that beginning was, but it was enough to define the novel for me. You know, I was just rereading Annie Dillard's The Writing Life, Mm. where she talks about writing is a track that you follow and then you erase your footsteps as you go. And I definitely did a lot of that erasing, but it, but it led me to this place and to this novel. So it was part of the process part of the work. Yeah. Can we maybe transition a little bit to talk about your, uh, your right. I don't like to say writing process, but like, you know, your writing routine or like kind of what your, your ideal setup is, which would probably also be a good time to mention that you, um, you, you and your husband built your house, right. And you live kind of Mm -hmm. this magical creative Mm -hmm. life in the woods is how I understand Mm -hmm. it. <laughs> I was just looking at your piece on Design Sponge and just like coveting. I was like, oh, this sounds so cool. I know it is. It is truly beautiful, and it was so much work. So when I was sixteen, I went out into the woods. I, I just couldn't live at home anymore. My mom and I. I loved my mother, but we could not live in the same house mm-hmm. all the time. And my dad bless his soul, recognize that. So he and I built a cabin for myself. Uh, So the cabin, I built the cabin here on the land where my husband and I live now. And uh, 10 years after that, my husband and I built an insulated cabin onto that cabin, which is now our living room. And uh, I don't know, eight years after that, when we were pregnant with my daughter, we built a kitchen and put in running water and a bathtub and then four years after that, we built another addition. So our house has become this, like, I mean, it's a, it's still, the rooms are all very small, but it's a very beautiful cabin and spacious cabin. Um, but so much work. I mean, we just spent, 
you know, we were working, both of us were working multiple odd jobs and we we're living in a construction zone and all of our early materials were salvaged or wood that we milled from here on the land. And at the same time, we were in a band and we were recording music and we were having babies and I was in graduate school. And so my early writing process, I really, it made me insane. And I, with the good thing is that I wanted so badly time to write that when I did have time to write, I just dove right in and there was no hesitation. I just wrote because it was a lifeline for me. So with, with Half Wild, with the collection of stories, I would get up at four or five in the morning, which is the only time when my daughter would be sleeping and I would write. And then now with the novel, my kids this year, they are both in public school full time and it's a miracle. They're five and nine. And so my life has changed so much. My house is complete and I'm no longer in a band and I just write and it feels very, very luxurious and I teach them. But so, um, right now my, I, right now my schedule is to write in the mornings and I would love to start getting up at 5am again to write, but we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I might, I might've become too lazy. Do you, you have an office in the house? I do have an office in the house, but I can't work there if my kids, there's very little sound barrier in my house. So I can't work there if my kids are home. And when it's cold, I can only work about two feet from the wood stove. Mm -hmm. So I just set up a little makeshift desk, which is where I am right now, two feet from the wood stove (laughs) and, and right there. And then I, you know, if my kids are around, I set up in various cabins. I wrote some in the cabin that I built when I was 16, which is now further off in the woods um, during the summer and kind of co-opted different cabins around Southern Vermont, which is easy to do because there are a lot of them. (laughs) And there are a lot of cabins in the novel as well. So it's fitting. Do you like to write on, on a computer or by hand? Do you have a preference? I do write on a computer. Yeah. I've written everything on a computer. Although I, I am trying to just spend a lot less time on a computer Mm. these days. And so I might toy, I, I am trying to dip my toe into a new writing project and I might toy with having, yeah, I love Scrivener. I don't know. If you oh, know I'm also a big fan of Scrivener. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't imagine working on a book without having a Scrivener document to, right. to put things into, but I might try doing a lot more work by hand and then inputting on a regular basis. My fear about writing by hand is that I lose things. And mm-hmm. scraps of paper and journals fill up really quickly and fill up with all sorts of other things. But um, I would like to experiment with writing by hand and then inputting and seeing what happens with that as I try to extract myself from computers and the internet in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> Just one yeah. of my goals. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good goal. Yeah, I've been working that way for a few months now and I find it really pleasurable. And it, it, the writing by hand piece suits me for one thing, because I think, like you're saying, there's something that feels much quieter about it in the morning to go to a piece of paper instead of to like boot up your computer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's something that feels so work, 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 work about booting up mm-hmm. your computer. Um, but yeah. then the same thing, like I'm getting ready to go to this residency. And then I realized that I had like four notebooks that I haven't transcribed yet. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not right, taking these a on a plane because, like, what, ha- what if I lose them? So now I'm transcribing them, um, and I and I should be doing that more regularly. But I think that if I would do that more regularly, then it, it is actually a really nice process for me because then because I find that like the generative writing I can only do for like a couple hours in the morning. But then when mm-hmm. I'm tinkering with stuff as I'm typing it into Scrivener, like I can work on that for hours on end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so does it help you with the editing process to as you're inputting the material? To yeah, have a little editing eye. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, tinkering with things. And sometimes like I'll read, you know, I'll start I'll start typing up a scene and I'll like read it through to the end and then just be like, no, I don't need this. You know, you kind of yeah. you have enough yeah. distance from it. Right. It really is true. Um my computer, I think eight years ago, felt like it was this kind of sacred space for writing. And since then, I do so much, you know, I'm doing teaching and I do, I don't know, publicity and emails and committees that I'm on and boards that I serve on. And so the computer just does not feel like a sacred space to me. And so uh, I think that's part of the problem is that not only does it connect to the internet and all of the distractions that are available there, but it as an object feels like a tool um, that I use for all, all these other things. And I really want the rich, the ritual of kind of a holy object that I, that I go to, to write. And so are you revising stuff kind of at the same time or how, you know, how, uh, how far ahead do you kind of let a draft get before you start sort of tinkering with it? I, I ask because I, this is something I'm trying to police myself from doing too much. Cause I think I had gotten, uh, mm-hmm. a little destructive with the way that I was monitoring yeah. myself for perfection. Yes. Um, I, I, so on my first draft, I ran into that problem where I spent, I wasted probably three months. I was trying to write a first draft within a year, which I ended up doing. And that seemed insane, but, but I spent two or three months struggling Oh, trying to decide what the first scene would be and which order the first scenes would be. And I would just go into, I wasn't using Scrivener at that point. I would go into Microsoft Word and move stuff around obsessively every day instead of actually writing. And once I moved into Scrivener, I set a, a word goal for myself, a daily word goal. And that helped so much just to say, you know what, you don't need to, you don't need to think about structure and you don't need to think about order until this whole thing is written. You just need to write, you need to write to the end of this thing and then, and then take a good long look at it and see where you've gotten. I mean, I do go back in and tweak words or decide that something I wrote the other day wasn't the right thing and erase it. But I do believe that you need to keep writing and, and you can, it can really be um, just a whole, if you get worried about perfection in the early stages. Was the decision to go to graduate school uh, a tough one for you, or did you know that the, you wanted to go into an MFA program? I It took me a long time. I, I had imposter syndrome for many, many years, and just thought that I was not I was not worthy of being a writer. I was not, you know, I had friends who are very gifted writers and had had a lot more writing experience and writing opportunities before I had. And I just thought they're real writers and I'm, I'm not a real writer. 
And so I did all of these other things during my 20s. I did documentary film, and my husband and I were in this band. And I was writing throughout that time, but not sharing my work and never really believing that that I was worthy of this work. And then I was 28 and finally said, I signed up for a writing workshop at a woman's house in Philadelphia. And that was a huge, terrifying moment for me to just say, I want to do this. I, I think this is what I want to do. And I want to do this. And then once I did that, it gave me just enough confidence to apply to a low residency MFA. And I knew that I wanted to do a low residency. I knew that I would be living in Vermont. My husband and I were moving back there. We weren't married then, but we were moving back to Vermont. <clears throat> and I didn't want to move somewhere else for a program. And I also know myself well enough that um, being around a community of writers is an amazing thing, but it can also be a really intimidating thing. Mm. And I know that in order for me to have find my own voice and have confidence in my own voice, I'm much better off working on my own from my own place. And so the low residency MFA was definitely the right choice for me in that it's a, it's kind of an introvert's dream. You know, you get to do the work, but have deadlines and have a mentor to send your work to and give you feedback. And so it was really a beautiful and perfect thing for me. Is that where the uh, short story collection, did those stories come out of that program? Yeah. Yeah. My, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to work on when I went into my, I went to Vermont College of Fine Arts, which I just had some, you know, it had Vermont in the name. I knew that's where I wanted to go <laughs> for that reason. And, um, I loved it there. It's an amazing, very supportive, generous, inclusive program. And I knew exactly what I wanted to work on. And I started writing these stories my first semester. And by the time, two years later, I had pretty much the half-wild manuscript. I added two more stories to it after the fact and revised them, but not in significant ways. So, yeah, I got a book out of that MFA program. What was the process of, of getting an agent and selling the book like? I am um, I'm so out of touch with the writing world. I just, I kind of follow people on social media, but other than that, I have very few friends who are published writers and knew nobody in New York. And so I was so intimidated by the whole agent process and um, basically just sat on my manuscript and tweaked it and avoided the whole issue. And then my um, one of my good friends who lives here in Vermont with me, her that a good friend from childhood is an agent, and she said, you should send your book to my friend. And I did, and she accepted it. So I had just um, kind of the, the best of all worlds with that one and that I didn't have to go sending my work out and exposing myself to all the failure that I'm sure would have come my way <laughs> if I had done that. And then, um, and then she, she sold the books and it was, it was a miracle. It was one of those, I, I just, I have, I have visions for what my life might be and selling two books to a publisher like Echo was never part of the game plan and completely floored me. <laughs> So it was it was one of those um, moments of shock and elation and surprise 
and then then I had to still go back and do the work, write the page, write a book. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to to zoom out a little bit too and talk about because um, we we both write about place so much, and I just really want to talk to you about mm-hmm. that. And I read this interview with you, and you had this really great answer to uh, to a question about sort of literary greats that you learned from or you you know that you found inspiration in and and you said you know you I think Flannery O'Connor was one of them and you know these sort of stories that you can you can see maybe where the DNA would be similar but you said that you always felt kind of this this yes but feeling uh, not of course that those are amazing writers but just saying like well but the story mm-hmm. that I this is almost like the story I would want to tell but not quite um and that really resonated mm-hmm. with me too because I feel like something that um definitely happens, you know, to all sorts of, of under told narratives is that they get flattened into one narrative. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know mm-hmm. if that, if that's something that you feel with was happening, you know, with, with what you were reading about where you came from, but it was sort of just more about what that yeah. yes, but feeling was. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel that for you writing about Appalachia because there are so many Appalachian writers and, um, it definitely, so many of them who write beautifully, and yet it all does blend into one kind of narrative, mm-hmm. at least from my perspective here. Um, for me, I there are there aren't as many rural New England. I'm, maybe this is not maybe this is an inaccurate statement. I read a lot of Appalachian writers um, and a lot of Southern writers, Mm -hmm. and I have never connected quite as much with New England fiction writers. I think because my upbringing was so rural in a way that was actually more similar to Appalachian writing than to the New England writing that I was reading. But what I found in a lot, and this is not true of Flannery O'Connor, um, and not true of Eudora Wealthy, but I found that a lot of rural American writing is masculine mm-hmm. and and that a lot of the women are victims in a way that I is you know I is not my experience. I wanted to write about women who were in rural spaces who had chosen that those rural places for their own reasons and had their own very authentic relationships to landscape. And I think we learn, we read a lot about men and their relationships to wildness and landscape and less about women and their relationships to wildness and landscapes. And I, you know, where I grew up, my mother is this farmer. She spends all day long outside in her fields. And then when it's this kind of weather, you know, she's probably, it's zero and gusting wind. And I'm sure she's on her cross country skis right now out in the woods with her dog, which is what she does. She's, she's like, she's a hermit and, um, I, you know, not an extreme hermit, but kind of a hermit and loves the woods, loves, loves being out in them. And and that's, that's the place that feeds her. And I wanted to write about that because I didn't see much of that in fiction. And so that became clear early on that that was, that was the thing that was missing for me that I wanted to tell. Yeah. I, that, that completely resonates with me. And I think that, you know, where where that's coming out in my writing too is um i and my like my personal background is not very rural other than the fact that i grew up in this rural place you know like my my family is mm-hmm. not a farming family or um you know it was kind of a, 
a more, I guess, quote unquote, normal um, thing. But I, but I always think of my grandmother and the things that like, you know, she like, like she cared for dying people, people died in her house and like the things that she just kind of Mm -hmm. had to like muscle up and go through. And I feel like women of that generation and the generations prior that Mm -hmm. that's such a defining quality of just like, well, Mm -hmm. here's the work that needs to be done. Let's do it. And, and I, I think you're completely right that, and I think in Appalachia, it's especially, um, kind of compounded because of the coal industry, this very masculinized narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, it, yeah. and it's hard to find your own way. You have to write your own way into that. Yeah, yeah, which is which is great. It's also a gift yes. in that there's this there's this story that hasn't been told yet, and so that invites you to the table, right? To say I have something to add to this. Absolutely. And yeah, and I I do think of that that ruggedness of our grandmother's generations. I remember my grandmother making fun of somebody because she didn't know how to go out in the yard and kill a chicken and make dinner. <laughs> and I, and I thought, Oh fuck. Yeah, right. <laughs> I that. Who else can I ask to, t- to teach me how to go kill a chicken? <laughs> I mean, I actually, you know, I grew up, my mother knows how to do that. I grew up with my parents doing that. And I, that's one of the things that I am, that I have not inherited. Yeah. I have not inherited the will or the drive to slaughter my own birds. Yeah, yeah. But my grandmother was definitely like, what kind of woman doesn't know how to go out, you know, kill a bird for dinner? <laughs> so <laughs> there is that that strength and resiliency and just um, get it doneness that that generation definitely had yeah. and that we can learn from, you know, that we will have to learn from potentially. Absolutely. You know, obviously this is a place that you know very intimately and, and think a lot about, but it also seems from the uh, the acknowledgments of the novel that you did a ton of research. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know if I did a ton of research or just read books that, that interested me and that related to uh, the book. I did want to bring in this indigenous history, Vermont. Um, uh, so it wasn't long ago, it was maybe five years ago, that I learned about the eugenic survey of Vermont, which took place in the 20s and 30s. And it was created by the Vermont Commission on Country Life, and its explicit mission was to um, kind of find Vermont's poor people and people of color and institutionalize many of them and sterilize many of them. And so a lot of Vermont's remaining Abenaki, which there were not many of at that time, at that point were institutionalized, many were sterilized, and the others either went to Canada, which was a much more accepting community, or um, or denied their their heritage. And so this this indigenous culture in Vermont, which had already been so damaged, was pretty much completely wiped out. And people are just talking about this now because these families, Abenaki families, for the past two generations or three generations have insisted that people don't are afraid to um, say that they are Abenaki, Mm. that they are indigenous. And so I discovered this and I, it really shifted once again, the, my sense of place shifted in this radical way and that I had, you know, I know Vermont is not a perfect place, but I had never realized that the mythology of Vermont was very intentionally created and has very racist, explicitly racist and violent undertones. 
And so this is something that comes up in the book as Vale discovers um, secrets about her past and uncovers this story. And I, I think what I wanted to explore is the ways in which these violences will continue to affect our relationship to the earth and our relationship to the places where we live until we acknowledge them. And only when we acknowledge them and admit them, can we begin to heal. Yeah, that's incredible. And how did you find out about it in the first place? Is it, is it a a kind of open secret or did you just happen to not know about it? It is. um, It is. uh, It, um, people are starting to know about it and write about it now. Um, and there was a documentary that my good friend Nora Jacobson made, which came out a couple of years ago. But my husband is a film score musician, so he did the music. So I was able to see pieces of that early on. And I also became friends with a, an amazing Abenaki woman named um, Judy Dow, whose family, many of her family members were sterilized and institutionalized. And so she told me those stories and shared those stories with me. working on anything now that you want to talk about? No, I am just, I have about three or four documents on my computer that I keep thinking might be the next book. And then I get drawn into something else. And so I've come to accept that I am just in that dream space. And that that is a really necessary part of the process. Mm. And it's possible what I'm just even just today, actually, I realized that a couple of these things or maybe three of these things might marry each other in the same way that Deb and Stephen's story and the Hazel and Vale's stories married each other and became Heartspring Mountain. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I do, maybe I am working on one thing and I just don't know it. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. The thing about, I do want to, I do want to write another novel. I did completely fall in love with the novel form. And um, it's just so, it's so complicated and it's so expansive and so capacious. It can hold so much that I, I think it's the form for me and I'm excited to try and build something new. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that too, the, the way that it just kind of like becomes this puzzle that answers itself as you progress. Yeah. Yeah. And it can hold, it can evolve as you evolve. Like I said, these characters appeared years ago and then Tropical Storm Irene hit and that wove its way into the novel. And then, you know, whatever, whatever my most pressing concerns are, they could weave their way in. And so it really is something that that has the, um, is grand enough to stick with you for the number of years that it takes to write one. What, uh, going back a little bit, uh, your, your description there just made me wonder when you're, when you're revising, you know, and, and over time as these other elements kind of are coming in, what was the editing process like in terms of, you know, when you introduced readers and, and when you felt comfortable kind of showing bigger chunks of it and how it, how it's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the actually kind of nitty gritty editing stages. Yeah. I don't like showing my unfinished work to anybody. So I'm very, I'm very, I'm terrible in that regard. And so I did not show, uh, well, no, I showed my husband a completed first draft one month before I showed it to my editor, Mm -hmm. but I had finished it. I felt like, I felt like until it got to the end, there wasn't any point in showing anyone because it was not a complete thing for them to even look at, 
you know, and because narrative arc is so essential, I just needed to, I needed to create that arc before any other eyes were on it. So then one year in, I showed it to my husband, showed it to my agent and my editor at the same time. And then, um, and then it was really, it was really my agent and my editor were my eyes. I showed it to one other friend, but other than that, I, I kept the circle pretty small in terms of who saw it. And is that the same editor that you worked with for Half Wild? It is. Yeah. Although Half Wild was almost nearly in the form that it is in Mm. now. So she and I didn't work together too much on editing. Um, and I love my editor. I'm so grateful for her. And it was also a terrifying thing to say, oh my goodness, I'm trusting this person entirely with this book and we've never worked together before. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got, I got very lucky in that she's brilliant and she knew just when to encourage me and how to very gently discourage me. And most importantly, when to tell me, okay, you're done, you can stop. You, you know, I, I did get to a place where I might have rewritten the entire thing mm. if I had been given an opportunity to. <clears throat> and um, she very gently and cheerfully said, no, no, we're done. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very grateful <laughs> for her for doing that. That is that is so hard. I had a professor in grad school uh, who said that when a chapter was done, he would literally lock it in a safe or like lock it in his drawer uh-huh. so that he couldn't reach it yeah yeah it um you know there's self-doubt and there's also which some days we love what we write and some days we hate what we write and if we if we have on a day that we hate it if we're feeling bold we could destroy the whole thing and and that and really as an artist you have no idea whether in those moments where where it stands um, and whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. So having someone you trust is so essential. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? I wrote an essay about a year ago um, about my my book of short stories had been published. I guess it was maybe six months ago. My book of, of short stories had been published. My novel was coming into the world. By all external standards, I am... I am finding success in this career. And yet success is this really slippery thing where the more success you have, the higher your expectations become and the more you start comparing your work and your successes to others. And there's really no, no matter where you get, you'll never be happy if your success is based on what other people say or think or spend their money on. And so I really had to do a major, and it was making me anxious and it was making me depressed. I was really worried that this novel wouldn't be accepted, that this novel wouldn't be loved, that this novel wouldn't do well, and that my career would fold. And all of that is still possible. I know nothing about how this novel will do. But I really did some some pretty major personal work in terms of just um, returning to the fact that I love to write. And that no matter what happens, my the place where I'm most happy is showing up to a page every day and putting words down on it and, and sharing my vision of the world. And so I thought of, you know, I, I looked out my, my office windows, look out on the fields where my mom works. And she works from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day all summer. 
And her, there's no like, there's no glory in my mother's life as a farmer. And yet she shows up and does the work because she loves to do the work. And slowly she makes the world a more beautiful place and healthier place by doing what she does. And so I really shifted my mind frame and my mother became my role model, ironically, since she's the farthest thing from a writer. (laughs) Um, And I just decided to show up and face the page with like reverence because that's where I want to be. And so that is, that is artistic satisfaction is being able to do the thing you love without hope for glory or fame. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.